about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, Anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, this letter of the Apostle Paul, his, maybe his last letter. Uh, Lord, keep teaching us from it and help us to serve you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, there's an outline and the passage printed in your sheets, uh, which you got on the way in. I uh, hope that's helpful. Um, so what does it look like for a church to be successful, do you think? Um, I made myself uh, watch the start of the recent Stan series, Prosper. Has anybody, anybody watched this? Yeah, this is streaming. At least, at least one or two people have watched it. You know, it's got Richard Roxburgh and Rebecca Gibney. Um, it tells the story of a fictional Australian megachurch called... I'll just turn this microphone off. I think it's feedbacking. Fiction, a fictional Australian megachurch called Ustar. Let the reader understand. Uh, and it's Pastor Cal Quinn. Um, it's not pleasant viewing, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, for, this, for this church... Success means numbers, influence, and the way to get there is charisma, big screens, effective marketing, celebrity baptisms, and political influence. And if some ordinary people get kind of chewed up and spat out along the way, well, that just might be what needs to happen. What matters is that the shiny surface and its promise of success stay intact. Now, I don't really know how close to the reality of 
Hillsong or C3 or some other church this is. I hope it's a nasty and grotesque exaggeration. What I do know, though, is that even smaller, messier, much less glamorous churches like this one, we need to guard against versions of those temptations. Because very few of us actually are immune from the temptations of influence and power and from the attractions of, you know, from the temptation to keep the surface intact above all else and to be careless with people who have less influence, less clout in the world. In the first episode of Prosper, the leadership of Eustar, which basically is just the senior pastor's children, that is a bad sign, just so you know, like in case nepotism, just not normally good, even in a church. Um, this, the leadership, they have the chance to baptise a famous DJ. And at the same time, the senior pastor, Cal, is having trouble with an older woman who is struggling with addiction. Um, it's such an, an obvious contrast, though it is pretty well done, I think, in the show. But if those two people came to church here, like a celebrity DJ and an older woman struggling with a, a drug addiction, how would we react? Actually, we'd need, I'd need to change it because you couldn't ask me to name a famous DJ. Like, I couldn't name a famous DJ if you put a gun to my head on no idea, but, you know, a famous person, right, somebody, which opportunity would we find more exciting? Which would we find kind of burdensome? Well, the passage we're reading from 2 Timothy today, it speaks to this issue indirectly, because it is a passage about what we could call the rules of the game of gospel ministry. From prison kind of beyond the temptations of worldly success, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy and through him reminds us of how Christian ministry has to work, what we must remember. It's a critically important reminder for pastors, for churches, and just for all believers, I think. So the passage falls into two halves, and we're going to take them in turn. Be strong in the grace, and then remember Jesus Christ. So, first, in the first half, Paul reminds Timothy of fundamental principles he must remember in his ministry. Um, these are like the framework or the boundaries within which he, he has to remember to work within. Um, let me draw attention to five things really quickly in what Paul says here, five things. So, first... Notice how he begins by calling Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, the word for be strong is the same root word as the word for power. I mentioned this just because it's a theme that keeps coming up in 2 Timothy, and you may have noticed this. Um, in chapter 1, Paul talks about how the Spirit gives power, and he says to Timothy, join with me in suffering by the power of God. That's in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In chapter 1, verse 12... He says, God has power to guard what I've entrusted to him. Um, this theme is not always super obvious because of translation. Like, for example, this is translated as be strong, but it is the theme there. Paul's saying the power of God is there and you need to rest in it and be strong in it. 
But let us stress, that power is not worldly power. It's not mere strength. It's the power of God, which Paul knows and Timothy knows and we know is the power of the cross, of the way of suffering, actually. That's why Timothy has not just to be strong, but to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He is not called just to be a courageous and strong leader. He's called to be a courageous and strong leader shaped by the way of Jesus. Secondly, the chief thing Paul calls Timothy to do is to entrust the things he has heard Paul say to reliable people. Now that's in verse 2. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Think about you know, how humbling this is. For, for Paul to tell Timothy, your most important job is your succession planning. It cuts down his ego, actually. Because it forces Timothy to remember that he is not the hero of this story. He is just a link in the chain. The hero of this story is the words that are handed down, and through them, Jesus. Third thing, Paul now uses three little analogies to remind Timothy of important things he has to remember. In the first, he likens Timothy's task to being a soldier. You are called to suffer like a soldier, he says, and to be single-minded like a soldier. Uh, It will help with this analogy if we know a little bit about what it was like to be a Roman legionary. They're the soldiers Paul's referring to. Um, uh, there was a funny meme a little while ago uh, about, on, on Twitter about how uh, most men think about the Roman Empire at least once a week. <laughs> and there was just this kind of just hilarious... And, and you know, people were asking each other, is this true? I think it probably is true of me, actually. I think I do think about the Roman Empire at least once a week. But anyway... I want you to think about the Roman Empire right now, right? It was a fearsome job being a Roman legionary. The suffering they had to endure at times was legendary. If they backed down or ran away, they were beaten and stoned by their fellow soldiers. At the time Paul was writing, Roman soldiers were not allowed to marry in order to be devoted to their task. You have to be like that, says Paul. He didn't mean the marrying bit, by the way, because later on he says um, elders are allowed to marry, just only one person. But there does have to be, he says, a single, dedicated focus on the task that you've been given. The second analogy likens Timothy's work to that of an athlete. You don't win, he says, except by competing according to the rules. I think Paul has in mind here actually not just the rules of the competition, but the rules of training, the kind of patterns you have to adopt in order to be a successful athlete. You have to do the thing properly, he's saying. You have to do it fittingly. You can't cut corners in this business. The work of gospel ministry is a certain kind of thing, certain kind of exercise, and you need to do it the way it's supposed to be done. The final analogy likens the work of gospel ministry to that of a farmer. Verse 6, the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. What's that about? 
Because of other references in Paul's work, people often assume this is about money and how gospel ministers have a right to be paid. And maybe that's right. Paul did think that ministers of the gospel ought to be supported. But I wonder whether that is what's in his mind here. I'm not sure. I wonder whether the crops Paul's talking about here are actually spiritual crops. He's talking about the, the, the crops of the powerful word of God. Um, I think what Paul has in mind is that Timothy must be the first to learn from God's word. He has to be the first to learn from the teaching that he's going to give. I think Paul may have been reminding Timothy that he himself must be fed by the things he is trying to give others. See, what we get in these verses is a picture of the conditions of gospel ministry. There are rules of the game, says Paul. In fact, that's really what his second analogy there was about, rules of the game. This is how it needs to be done. It's not about you. It's about the words you're handing down. It requires a single-minded focus, the willingness to subject yourself to discipline like an athlete, and you must always yourself be fed by what you're teaching. Do you know, these words have had a really big impact on Anglican ministry. When somebody is ordained as a, uh, a presbyter, or traditionally a priest, uh, one of the oaths they swear is this one. The bishop says, will you be diligent in prayer and in the reading of the scriptures, undertaking studies that help to a fuller knowledge of them, and turning aside from the pursuit of studies for self-indulgence and worldly gain. And the candidate says, I will do so, the Lord being my helper. There's a commitment there. It's about focus, and it's about the words. Peter and I have sworn that oath, um, along with many others. But Paul's words to Timothy have relevance, I think, to the life of the church as a whole, as well as to the work of ministry. They are a reminder to all of us of what the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline that Paul's talked about, what that looks like. We are all together called to be strong in the grace of Christ, to pursue the task given to us as a church and as believers with dedication and focus Churches go astray when they get caught up in too many side projects and concerns. That is not to say there aren't other things we should think about and be concerned with and pay attention to at times. That's fine, but at the centre of our attention must always be the work of proclaiming Christ, making disciples, and seeking to hand on the pattern of teaching to those who have come after us. At the very end of this section, Paul says, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Uh, can I just encourage you to do that, maybe in your small groups, but uh, I've also put a question time in the service because I thought that, that can be like a really practical way to try and do that. Reflect on what I'm saying. So maybe think about a question if you have one. Uh, I'm confident that the Lord will give us insight. But for now, let's press on. Let's turn where Paul does uh, because he moves on now to what we could call the deeper foundations of what he's been saying. Remember Jesus Christ, he says in verse 8. Did you catch that? It's there in your sheets. Remember Jesus Christ. 
What a strange thing to say. Was Paul in danger of forgetting Jesus? Was, was Timothy, I should say, was Timothy in danger of forgetting Jesus? Yes, I think he was. I think we all are, actually, in danger of forgetting the reality of Jesus Christ, though we may remember the name. But the reality of Jesus Christ is the reason for all the rules of the game Paul has just laid out. Remember Jesus Christ, he says, raised from the dead, descended from David. That's verse 8, if you're having a look. This is my gospel, he says, for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. You might find this summary of the gospel surprising. Raised from the dead, a descendant of David. But it's worth noticing that this is almost exactly how Paul begins the letter of Romans. Have a look at the beginning of Romans here. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you notice the two key things Paul mentions in our passage? Raised from the dead, a descendant of David. Why those two things? I don't know for sure, but I think these two things are like poles in the ground that keep in place the most important things about the good news, or at least some of the most important things. They ensure that you stay clear that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, but not a Messiah like people expected. He was a Messiah who won victory through death rather than by violence. These words also make you remember that Jesus was a Jew, that he came in fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel without just accepting everything Jews in Paul's day believed. Maybe that's what's going on for Paul there. These are the kind of things, if you get these right, he's kind of saying to Timothy, a lot of other stuff will follow. Now this gospel is the reason that Paul was in prison, chained like a criminal. But he goes on, this is no cause for shame. Oh, sorry, that's not how he goes on. Did you notice? I'm chained like a criminal, he says, but he goes, he goes on, God's word is not chained. What a great phrase. God's word is not chained. God's word still goes forward. And it cannot be stopped. It cannot be contained. And for that reason, Paul says, he can endure. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul can press on through his suffering because of a glorious hope of final salvation and eternal glory. Just take a moment to just imagine what those words meant to Paul, suffering in a Roman prison, chained up, humiliated, probably hungry, very tired, eternal glory. Now, this theme of enduring and hope leads Paul to quote that saying that is in the last few verses. Uh, he might have written this, or he might just be quoting a saying that somebody else had written he liked. I mean, it doesn't matter either way. Um, 
From verse 11, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What this saying is designed to do, I think, is to remind us of the reality of Jesus and what he means. If we died with him, we will live with him. Being a Christian is about dying with Christ, letting your old self be put to death and receiving the new life that he brings. We act this out every time we do a baptism. Baptism is a sign of death and resurrection. And this new life means endurance now, perhaps through real hardship. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. It ends in glory. We'll reign with him. How much of a contrast that must have been for Paul. He's a prisoner. But he knows that one day he will reign. But the reality of Jesus is also a warning. If we disown him, he will also disown us, or the word could be translated deny him. If we deny him, he will deny us. It might seem harsh, that. But Jesus himself said the same thing. Mark chapter 8, if anyone is ashamed of me, And my words, this is Jesus speaking, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And the reason for this is the last part of the saying. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. You see, Jesus is perfectly, utterly constant. He cannot disown himself. He cannot deny himself. And so if we refuse him, he must refuse us in the end, because he must be true to himself and his own glory. I don't know if you've noticed, though, but you can take that last statement in more than one way. You can take it as a statement of how in the face of our unfaithfulness, God will stay faithful to himself and so must deny us if we deny him. And I think that's an important truth. But you can also take it as a statement of how in the face of our unfaithfulness, God will not abandon us if we do not give up on him. He is faithful to himself. And what does that mean? It means he remains always the God of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And that's also true, and I want you to hear that today if you are going through a period of doubt. Know that even even if you doubt God, even if you feel like you hardly believe in him anymore, he remains the same. And he remains the same towards you full of love and mercy. Because when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is true that if in the end we refuse Christ, we turn away from him, he will turn away from us. Because he can't deny himself. But doubt is not yet denial. Doubt is not yet denial. And when we turn back to him, he will still be there, the same gracious God, for he cannot deny himself. 
Remember Jesus Christ. That is the anchor point we need above all things, to remember Jesus, the Messiah, crucified and raised, the guarantee of eternal glory. He is, friends, the ultimate reality of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, the one thing that in the end will matter absolutely. Do you know, I think almost all failures of pastors and churches arise fundamentally from forgetfulness of Jesus Christ. In the first uh, couple of episodes of Prosper, I didn't watch, like I didn't take notes, but I'm pretty sure this is right. There is hardly any reference to Jesus. There are some passing references, like he's named, but Jesus is never in view, really. There's a lot of talk of God Not a lot of talk about Jesus. But it is Jesus that we must remember above all. Because Jesus makes the reality of God concrete. And he keeps us from being captivated by our own imaginations and projections of God. What the Apostle Paul calls Timothy to here is a practice of ministry that is bounded by the reality of Jesus Christ. Timothy has to operate under constraints. There are rules of this game. He's got to respect them. There is a discipline. There is a focus required, a kind of laser focus. He must put the word first, not his dreams. He must not give up. You know, Jesus once told a parable to remind his disciples of this kind of idea, to remind them that they were, in the end, only servants. It's a bit of a tough parable, this one. I'm sure he knew what he was doing when he told it. Luke 17, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus told that parable, I think, to remind us not to get too big ahead. We are only ever servants. We are not entitled to anything. We are under constraint, called to be strong in grace. And not to be in any other way. But under this constraint, within these boundaries, held in this strength, in this purpose, there is glorious hope, eternal glory, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. For the gospel we serve, the words we serve, are the words, the news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah raised from the dead. And his word is never bound, is never chained but goes forward with unstoppable speed and power 
and it will triumph in the end. You can guarantee it. So friends, let us never become resentful at the path we have been called to take. Let us never become resentful of the difficulties of going forward by faith in accordance with the way of Christ and not just as we think best. In the end, we will only feel that the yoke we were given was easy, the burden was light, the boundary lines fell in pleasant places. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.